Everybody, welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Sorry for a moment about my voice. We're going to have to all bear with me because today we have Adam Liptak, who covers the United States Supreme Court for the New York Times. He also writes Sidebar, a column on legal developments. He was a finalist for the 2009 Pulitzer Prize in Explanatory Reporting. He's taught courses on the Supreme Court and the First Amendment at several law schools, including Yale and the University of Chicago. In 2013, he published an ebook to have and uphold the Supreme Court and the struggle for same-sex marriage. Adam, thank you so much for joining us and passing judgment with us. Oh, it's really great to be here. So let's dive right into two of the big cases that the court most recently heard, and those are dealing with President Biden's student loan cancellation plan. Now, the creation of this program really makes good on President Biden's campaign promise to cancel some student debt. This plan would erase a whopping $400 billion in student debt. President Biden tried and failed to create this program as a piece of legislation. And when he failed to get enough support in Congress, he took executive action. And that really brings us, I think, to the two big cases and the two issues in those cases, which is one, do the people who sued or do the states who sued have standing to stop the program? And two, if they do, is this program a proper use of executive power? Now, Adam, if you could, let's begin at the beginning. President Biden directed his Secretary of Education to act under a 2003 statute, the HEROES Act. Before we get into details like standing, the major questions doctrine, separation of powers, can you tell us about that 2003 statute in why President Biden thinks it gives him the power to cancel any student loans. Sure. So the HEROES Act, initially passed after the September 11 attacks of 2001 and later expanded, has some fairly broad language in it. It authorizes the the education secretary, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's going to be fairly close, uh, to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision affecting student debt. So those terms, waive or modify, are at the heart of this case. And he's able to do that in cases of terrorism, war, or national emergency. And I don't think there's much dispute that the worldwide pandemic was a national emergency. Indeed, the Trump administration declared it that. And the Trump administration itself invoked the HEROES Act to pause student debt repayment and interest accrual. So there's an example from the earlier administration of taking advantage of the HEROES Act to do something sort of like what President Biden ended up saying he was going to do in August. He had continued the pause in the loans, but now he says he wants to cancel outright, as you say, Jessica, more than $400 billion in student debt which would be one of the most ambitious and expensive executive actions ever. And the core question before the Supreme Court is, does that language I paraphrased a second ago, does that give the president that kind of power? 
So in a lot of ways, what President Biden did here by saying we're going to use the HEROES Act and that emergency provision in the HEROES Act to cancel debt, it was really an escalation of what President Trump and President Biden had done, which is to pause the debt. Is that right? That's right. And the program so far, the pause itself, has itself cost more than $100 billion. And over the course of the cancellation, as compared to the pause, uh, the yearly figures for the pause are more expensive. So in one sense, they're in the same area. But in another sense, and some of the conservative justices at the Supreme Court surely thought this, the words waive or modify more comfortably fits a pause than outright cancellation. And I think that was the very first question from Justice Thomas, if I'm correctly remembering the oral arguments, which is he said some version of, is this a waiver or a modification? Yes, you're you're remembering exactly right. And then Chief Justice Roberts jumped on that same line of thought. Uh, And the other conservative justices, and as you know, there are six of them now, seem to be sympathetic to that idea that uh, they think Congress needed to have spoken more clearly if it was going to authorize such a big move. And they invoked something, uh, a concept of fairly recent vintage, uh, but now called the major questions doctrine, which says that even if you have text in the statute that authorizes a move, if that move is of sufficiently large political or economic consequence, Congress has to speak especially clearly. And there was good reason to think that the combination of the hesitation on the right over the terms wave or modify and add on top of that, layer on top of that, the major questions doctrine, that seemed to suggest that this program might be in trouble at the Supreme Court. That's certainly the way I heard it. Now, for our listeners, I kind of preview that there are two big questions in these cases. In both cases, I think it's one, are the right people suing? And then you're previewing, I think, what I want to get into a little bit more, which is the merits of it, right? Can the executive implement this program at all? So could we start a little bit more with standing. Now, there are two cases. There's one case, and I think this is the bigger one, that was brought by six Republican-led states. And then there was another case brought by some individuals. Could we start with the case brought by the states? And can you explain why was so much time spent talking about standing and who or what is Mohila? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of talk about Mohila. So in federal court, I don't need to tell you, Jessica, you don't get to decide a case unless someone has a direct stake in it, unless someone has uh, been injured and the court can provide redress for that injury. That's the concept known as standing. That's not the only way you can run a legal system. Uh, Legal systems around the world allow courts to give abstract rulings, advisory rulings on whether a program is lawful, on whether legislation is constitutional. But in the U.S., as uh, the great legal scholar Walter Dellinger once told me, uh, you not only have judges who are like umpires, you can believe that analogy or not, 
But you also have the concept that they have to assure themselves that the person holding the bat actually is a player and not someone who ran in off the field who has nothing to do with the dispute. Uh, so anyway, you have to pass through this hurdle of standing. You have to show that you were injured. And there were real questions in the case about whether anyone had been injured. As you say, the main case was brought by six Republican-led states. And while they vaguely said that they will suffer some injury in not being able to collect taxes if uh, this program went through, nobody took that very seriously. Their main claim was that a quasi-independent Missouri loan processing authority created by the state of Missouri, but independent of it, would lose money if the program were to go through. And interestingly, the Biden administration solicitor general, arguing in defense of the program, says, yes, that agency called Mohila uh, would have standing. But she said correctly, it has chosen not to sue. It's not in the court. And Missouri said, the, the lawyer for the states said, that Missouri's entitled to, because it has something to do with Mohila, to advance Mohila's claims. And that was met by intense skepticism among the liberals and also seemingly one of the conservatives, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, so there's good reason to think that nobody has standing. But at the same time, I had the sense that the other conservatives were so eager to get to the merits that they might find a way to find that Mohila has standing. And I think they would take some comfort from the fact that it's such an odd, curious, sui generis situation that whatever standing law they would make in the case wouldn't have ripple effects in other cases. So that was a fantastic explanation. And in fact, I'm a little bit upset because I think I now have to trash my lecture on standing and just use that little <laughs> soundbite because it perfectly explains what we're talking about here, which is you have to be a player if you want to play the game. You have to be injured enough to walk into the courthouse doors. Yeah, consider the alternative. The alternative might be, you know, you or I think that some program is no good. It has nothing to do with us. But should we be allowed to go to the Supreme Court and say, please tell us whether uh, some executive action is lawful or not? And that would be uh, madness. Yeah, that truly would be a mess, maybe a bigger mess than this lengthy discussion we had about whether or not Missouri can basically assert Mohila's rights. Now, maybe I just don't understand the politics of what's going on here, but why didn't Mohila just sue or why didn't they get another student loan service to sue? So this whole first question is answered and we don't have this whole discussion of standing. I don't know the answer to that. And when, uh, the state's lawyer was asked that question. He said, cryptically, it's a matter of state politics. But it's a little odd, isn't it? I mean, this is the other side of the standing dispute. It's a little odd that we're, we're going to get an answer to this question or not on the happenstance of whether some official who runs something called Mohila decides whether he wants to sue or not. Yeah, I just couldn't quite get around the fact that there is agreement that somebody certainly has standing to sue, but we have to go through this really strange kind of procedural 
vehicle to try and get there. Now, as you said, it might be so unique that the conservatives aren't particularly worried about creating new law when it comes to the standing doctrine. One last question on this case in standing, which is, I heard you count it slightly differently than I did. I thought maybe it wasn't just Justice Barrett, but I thought maybe Justice Kavanaugh was also in play in terms of saying, I don't see standing here. Did you hear that at all from him? Is he potentially a wobbler on this question? Because, of course, for our listeners, if the court says there's no standing, that's it for these cases. I mean, other cases could be brought, but it means the court is not going to reach the big question of, does President Biden have the power to create this plan? So I think you're right, Jessica. I think there was a note of caution from Justice Kavanaugh, but I always discount that because Kavanaugh right. is the justice most likely to say both things in a given argument. He likes to appear to be, and probably actually is, uh, open to both sides' arguments. But when it comes time to vote, he's a pretty reliable conservative vote. So I'm not a journalist, so I'll say I totally agree with the first part of your sentence. I'm not sure I agree with the, and probably is. I'm not sure if he really is open to both or if that's how he wants to be viewed. But you're exactly right. We all need to be careful to put too much stock into what Justice Kavanaugh says in oral arguments. Now, really briefly, because I think this was the smaller case, there are also some individuals suing. And their argument on standing is a little bit strange to me, which is, we just missed being part of the program. And we could have either been part of the program at all, or we could have gotten the full benefit of the program. But because of how it was implemented, we didn't really get a chance to make our case to the Biden administration. Was there much action during oral arguments on potentially finding standing for these two individuals? No, these individuals are going to lose on standing. One of them doesn't have federal loans at all, only commercial loans. The other uh, would be sub, uh, entitled to $10,000 of forgiveness, not the maximum $20,000. And their argument is really uh, curious. It's that uh, they didn't have a chance to make their case that there should be broader forbearance. Therefore, nobody should get anything. And that doesn't make any sense as a matter of logic or standing doctrine. None of the justices took the argument particularly seriously. But I would say, in a way, it's bad for the Biden administration because it allows the court to appear judicious, saying, these people don't have standing. We're going to dismiss this case entirely because we take standing seriously. The states as such don't have standing. But lo and behold, Mohila does. And you only need one entity with standing to get to the merits, and that's going to be good enough for them. So I think these two individual borrowers, in a funny way, actually hurt the administration. I completely agree. I think it gives cover to the Supreme Court to say, no, we take our standing doctrine so seriously. Of course, these individuals had no standing. But, and then exactly as you said, but Mohila, they've been injured here. Now, I would love to talk to you more about standing, but I think our listeners are probably <laughs> saying, you know, get back to waiver, get back to modification, get back to the major questions doctrine, or maybe at its core, get back to, can the president do this? Now, I think, and we talked about this a little bit before our standing discussion, 
I think I heard our usual six to three split in favor of saying, this is a question for Congress. And you, President Biden, knew that. You tried to do this through legislation. You couldn't. Um, Is that what you heard? Is it because there's so much money? Is it because this is a court that doesn't want to give the president a win? Is it based on conservative ideology of we want to try and rein in the executive? Is it a combination? I think it's all of those things. I think there was a more than a little discussion of policy, which is not typically what you have at the Supreme Court. There's a lot of discussion about the wisdom and fairness of this forgiveness and whether it was done in a smart way, whether it rewards people who uh, took out more loans than they should have, perhaps, whether it disadvantages people who have paid off their loans or decided not to go to college. And none of that really is the Supreme Court's job to decide. That's a job for the political branches. But you could tell there was some animosity on the conservative side to some of the judgments uh, President Biden made. There was also an invocation of what I mentioned for a second before, the major questions doctrine, which uh, supposedly requires Congress to speak exceptionally clearly where there are major economic issues in play. And there was, you know, the separation of powers concern that these decisions really ought to be made by Congress. And in a perfect world, if we had a functioning Congress, not a polarized and hobbled one, they should be the ones making decisions about how to spend such sums of money. But at the same time, as Justice Elena Kagan said, the language of the HEROES Act is pretty clear. And it's in the nature of of emergencies that you want to give the executive branch the power to act nimbly and broadly and quickly to address emergencies. And nobody disputes that the pandemic was a once in a century health emergency. So are the conservatives, I'm not sure quite how to phrase this, but the pandemic was an emergency. The statute says you can act in times of emergency. Yes, it costs a lot of money, but the whole point of emergencies is that we can't play out exactly what's going to happen, and we don't want to hamstring the executive. Um, What does the argument that I think we will see, or the decision that I think we will see, what does that look like in the sense that the conservatives will say this is a huge decision? It cancels $400 billion of debt. And so you needed to ask Congress first. But my understanding is that the major questions doctrine doesn't hinge on the amount of money spent. It really hinges on the creation of an entirely new program that you would envision Congress having to weigh in on. So the contours of the major question doctrine are a little fuzzy. Uh, The court first used the term in a majority opinion in June in limiting the power of the Environmental Protection Agency to address climate change. So what you just sketched out, Jessica, is indeed one version of it, but it seems to be kind of a protean thing that accommodates itself to achieve the result uh, that the people invoking it want to achieve. I guess there's one more element we haven't talked about, And it didn't come up all that much at the argument, but it's probably part of the court's thinking, is that they may think, yes, there was an emergency, 
and the, the loan pause, the loan forbearance addressed that emergency. But most people would say the pandemic is largely over. The national state of emergency is going to lift apparently on May 11th. So this kind of after the fact loan cancellation, while the, the administration adamantly believes it's needed to address the aftershocks of the pandemic and the harm it would cause people who would default on their loans if they were made to repay their entire loans, if poorer people, if they were put in that bind. I think the court may be affected by a sense that whatever emergency there was has largely passed. It does seem that in this case, and then of course, in another case dealing with immigration, the ending of the emergency could really loom large. And exactly as you said, the court could say, it happened, and that's why you pause loans, but that's not why you cancel them completely. And I was playing devil's advocate a little bit, but I think you're so right to point out that the major questions doctrine, it's not been in our jurisprudence for hundreds of years. It's a new doctrine, and I think it's basically, as I see it, it's a doctrine that allows the court to say, no, this is for Congress, or no, it's okay, the executive branch can do this. And could you remind us, what did Justice Kagan say about the Major Questions Doctrine back in June when it first appeared in that case? Well, she, 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 uh, or magically appeared, as she put it. She said it's, you know, the conservatives say that they're textualists, that their job in interpreting federal laws, interpreting statutes, is to look at the plain words of the statute and make sense of them and say whether they reach this conduct or not. But there's this special class of cases where the text alone doesn't get you there. You have to have super special, uh, clear congressional language in those major question cases. And she called the doctrine a get-out-of-text-free card. Anybody who doubts the power of her writing, I think that was such a great example because whether or not you agree with her, you understand exactly what she's saying in that moment. And that's why I thought it was so powerful. She had famously said when she was dean of Harvard Law School and who really hired an ideologically diverse faculty and trafficked in the major doctrines, she said at one point in public, we are all textualists now. And she repeated that statement in her opinion in June in her dissent and said, I guess I was mistaken. I remember that for a lot of us, that was a fun moment in the sense that she knows exactly what she's doing. And I really do enjoy reading her opinions. And I enjoy that she loops back to things that she said or written before. And I want to talk about one more separation of powers issues, which is obviously looking at this case from a different angle, which is, of course, there's a question of who has the power to do this? Do we have to go through the legislative branch or can the executive create this program? But isn't there also a bit of an issue between the judicial branch and the executive branch? And basically an argument that maybe the court shouldn't be looking at this executive action with such skepticism. Maybe it shouldn't look under the hood quite this much, and it should be slightly more deferential to the executive, which of course loops into the conversation we've been having about 
the major questions doctrine and whose role is this? But isn't there also a question of the judiciary basically stepping outside its lane? I think that's an excellent point. So the major questions doctrine pretends to defer to Congress, but what it actually does is elevate judicial power at the expense of both the executive and legislative branches. And it's of a piece with what uh, Mark Lemley at Stanford has called the Imperial Supreme Court, where it likes to decide every question itself rather than let the political branches hash things out. I mean, you could imagine the following. Okay, maybe there's some question about whether Congress authorized this emergency action or not. Congress tomorrow is free to tell the president he can't spend the money. Uh, Congress could act if it wants to. Now, we live in a particularly diminished Congress that's unable to do much of anything. But I think the framers would probably have anticipated if a president goes rogue and wants to spend money on something that's not authorized, Congress will pass legislation to stop him. Right. But Congress, of course, is mired in inaction. Could you remind the listeners, this isn't the first time we've had this pattern where the president tries to implement a policy, goes to Congress and says, come on, let's pass this piece of legislation. Congress does nothing. The president can't get any sort of momentum. And then the president tries to go it alone. Could you remind us of a couple of situations? Because it's not just President Biden and it's not just student loans. Right. Well, certainly there have been other COVID-related executive actions where the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wanted an eviction ban to stop people from being evicted and thereby spreading the coronavirus pandemic. And the court stopped that. When OSHA tried to impose a vaccine or testing mandate on large employers, the court stopped that. When the Trump administration tried things like the travel ban, say, the court was more sympathetic and said uh, that the relevant statute exuded deference to the administration. So it does matter a little bit, it seems, about which administration is appearing before the court. On the other hand, uh, when President Trump tried to rescind DACA, the program that protects young immigrants known as DREAMers, the court, by a five to four vote with the Chief Justice joining what was then a four-member liberal wing, so it was a close thing, but nonetheless stopped President Trump from uh, rescinding DACA. And similarly, in a case about adding a question on citizenship to the census, there was a similar dynamic. I was just thinking about the census question. And of course, when it comes to DACA, that's part of our story, which is President Obama couldn't do that with Congress. He had to go it alone. And then we had all sorts of legal questions about the creation and the attempt to end DACA. I could spend so much more time talking to you about this, but I do want to get back to these two cases as we're ending our conversation and just ask you if the cases go as maybe I think that they will, which is that the conservatives are really motivated, as I think we've both heard, to get to the merits. And I think that they will say, this is a question for Congress. If you want to do this, then go through the legislative branch. How will that affect the perception of the court? I have this fear that what people will take is just 
the bottom line or the headline or however you want to phrase it, but it will be conservative court overturns President Biden's student loan plan. And people just view it as conservatives versus liberals. Is this going to be another case where we talk about the legitimacy of the court and we talk about whether or not the court is out of step with public opinion? It will be another such case, and it's true that the Supreme Court's approval ratings have fallen quite dramatically, although they've bounced back a little bit since the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade. But when you unpack those numbers a little bit, really what happens is Democrats are unhappy with the court and Republicans are generally happy with it. So what we have is, and certainly this is not desirable, but we have a court that kind of mimics maybe in a slightly more lopsided way, but nonetheless, the polarized politics in the United States, in Congress, in the land. And, you know, it may do damage to whatever it means to the court's legitimacy. I think actual damage to the court's legitimacy would require people not to follow what it rules. And I don't think we're near that. Uh, But And the politics of it are somewhat complicated because President Biden, even if he loses this thing, as he's likely to, got a big bounce in the midterm elections by dint of having made the promise of debt relief. And I think he will have some political gains also among young Democrats. And at least he tried and the big bad Supreme Court stopped him. So there are a lot of cross currents here, Jessica. And Now, Adam Liptak, I promise last question because you talked about the polarization of the American public. Of course, the court, as you said, it's mirroring that polarization. And you could give a three-hour answer to this question, I know. But one thing I'm not sure everybody understands is this is a court where it's not just that they're polarized, but there really is no center. The people who are, quote unquote, in the center are very, in my mind, very conservative justices. You might think that's wonderful. You might think it's terrible. But I don't think there's a true moderate on the court on either side now. Could you briefly help us understand why does it matter that there is no one truly in the center? There is no more kind of old O'Connor or even Kennedy swing vote here. So I've covered the court for 15 years and for almost the entirety of it. Anthony Kennedy was in the middle. He was a kind of center-right moderate, but he would surprise you in cases on abortion and affirmative action and the death penalty and notably gay rights. And you didn't have the sense that you walk into an argument and you know how it's going to come out. There seemed to be some sense that both sides were getting a fair hearing, some sense that at the end of the term, There would be a decision one side would love and a decision the other side would love. And it felt more like a court as a consequence of that. And then when Kennedy retires, Chief Justice Roberts was briefly in the center seat. And while he's nobody's idea of a liberal, he would also, and not all that infrequently, find ways to either issue only quite incremental decisions or actually to join the left side of the court. But with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and her replacement by uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, we now have a six to three court where the chief justice is outflanked on his right by five justices, meaning he can't control his own court 
And we have a situation, which is what we saw at the end of the last term, where on abortion, guns, religion, climate, the left got steamrolled. And it doesn't feel like that kind of court in which both sides get a fair hearing because the outcomes seem predetermined. And we're just going to continue to see more of that. Uh, We've been talking with Adam Liptak, the Supreme Court reporter for The New York Times. Adam, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you, Jessica. And I hope you feel better. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for bearing with me while my voice sounds like this. Please, of course, continue to rate, review, and subscribe. We're going to keep you updated on this case and many other big legal developments. We wish everybody a great day. 